If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favourite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Throughout history, people have loved to make lists. And one of the very earliest is the tantalising seven wonders of the ancient world. In this week's Everything You Wanted to Know episode... The public historian and author, Bethany Hughes, speaks with Rachel Dinning to answer listener questions on these seven spectacular ancient monuments. From the engineering genius of the Great Pyramid to the elusive backstory of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. People have created lists of wonder throughout history, but the original of these is arguably the seven wonders of the ancient world, which is the subject of your new book. And to kick us off, I thought perhaps you should just tell us what are the seven wonders of the ancient world? Well, of course, I'd love to tell you that. The honest answer is it's not totally simple because they vary sometimes from one list to another. But the most popular, I'll tell you, are the Great Pyramids at Giza, particularly Khufu's Pyramid, which is the biggest and the first, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which may or may not have existed, but we can have a chat about that. The Temple of Artemis at Ephesus in what is now modern-day Turkey. The Statue of Zeus at Olympia. The Mausoleum of Halicarnassus, which is now called Bodrum, but it was an ancient city again on the coast of Turkey. The Colossus of Rhodes, which was this 
enormous statue that towered above the harbour at Rhodes, but only stood for 50 years or so and was, was felled by an earthquake. And then this is where it gets controversial, is that in a lot of the later lists, it was the lighthouse of Alexandria, this extraordinary lighthouse in the city of Alexandria. But in a number of the ancient lists, that doesn't appear. And it's sometimes the walls of Babylon or an obelisk that's in Babylon. And in later lists, you know, people talk about the Colosseum. But the lighthouse of Alexandria is one of the most popular of the seventh. So that's what I've made, the seven wonders. And it does appear in seven wonders, in seven wonders lists. But yeah, it's one of those things. It depends who you're reading, basically, which are the official seven wonders of the ancient world. And you've mentioned, obviously, there's a number of lists over the years that crop up. But where can we trace the first list to? Who came up with this original list? The lists start to appear in the Hellenistic world. So this is the ancient world after the time of Alexander the Great, when his generals are basically kind of duffing each other up and trying to have control of lots of Asia and North Africa and Europe. And in the city of Alexandria, it was this incredible city. I mean, the most extraordinary place and a place that loved lists because it was following on from Aristotle's philosophy, which is a lot about kind of being rational and having a taxonomy. It was kind of obsessed with to-do lists and lists of the biggest, the best, the oldest, the greatest. So lists were, were a thing that Alexandria did. And so the earliest surviving examples that we've got of the lists of the seven wonders of the ancient world come from the city of Alexandria. Alexandria, and they were written on papyrus uh, scrolls. And there's the most brilliant bit of detective work that we've had to do to try to find these earliest lists. Because they were written on papyri, this was often then reused to mummify animals or humans. So to find these lists, you have to go to this thing called cartonnage, which is what's used to wrap up mummies and kind of read it incredibly carefully. Obviously, we can now do this with laser scans and sometimes even with AI, but it's sort of piecing that together. So the lists that we know of, the very oldest surviving Seven Wonders list is this beautiful thing. It's very fragmentary called the Latakuli Alexandria and Latakuli is a sort of basically when things were set down either on stone or on papyrus or later on vellum as a, as a list and that's where we hear about the seven wonders but I love this document so much because actually what it is, it's a list of the seven of the best everything. So it's like the seven best lakes, the seven best mountains, the seven best rivers, the seven toughest generals. So it's like a kind of who's who of the ancient world. But, you know, one thing that's really important to remember, and, you know, I try to do this kind of throughout in the book, is that even though that list comes from Alexandria, which was a Hellenistic, a kind of, you know, Greek-facing culture, the idea of seven as a kind of magic thing is much, much, much older. And that's something which is supported and flourishes and adored in a way in the East, in the Near East and the Middle East. So we actually think there probably were older Seven Wonders lists, but so far either they haven't survived or we, or we just haven't found them. Well, I was going to ask you about the number seven. So that was a deliberate choice to keep it at seven, we think, because of these, you know, mythical associations. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. So seven has always been this this number that uh, kind of mathematically is very exciting. It was thought to be the multiplication of the elements of the earth and the cosmos. So it was so it was all power together, earthly power and heavenly power together as well. And so basically once this idea of seven as being a special magic number takes hold, 
records. And this is this is really early. So we're going right the way back to some of the oldest records that we have. For instance, the Epic of Gilgamesh, again, from Mesopotamia, from the Middle East, where the number seven appears again as having this, sometimes this kind of demonic power. So you hear about these era, these kind of malign forces, and there are seven of those and seven sons of those. And once that idea seizes the human imagination, then it takes hold and you find it in Babylonian culture, in Sumerian culture, in Assyrian culture, in Greek culture, in Carian culture. So ba- basically everybody grabs this idea that seven matters. It's one of the things I just love about history and I love about us humans is that we're so rational and we're so irrational. You know, we invent these things. And we go, oh, yeah, obviously, you know, it has to be a list of seven. But that's. It could be any number, really, but that's what we've decided. And it kind of gives us comfort, I think, to have this sense that there have always been seven special things right the way through history. That makes sense. And something that I'm really curious to know, because if these, I mean, not all of these seven wonders still exist. In fact, it's only the Great Pyramid that you can see in its sort of entirety today. But would there ever have been a moment in history where you could have technically gone and seen all seven of the wonders? Did they exist at the same time? Well, absolutely. They they absolutely did. And the pyramid is much older than most of them. So that's, you know, four and a half thousand years old. And the Hanging Gardens are then, again, about 2,600 years old, something like that. But most of them are around 2,400, 2,300 years old. So, so a lot of the rest are then built in this kind of similar time slice. But yet, absolutely, you could go and see them together. And people did that. So there were these ancient tourists who went, Pliny the Elder, who's, you know, a very famous Roman author who sadly was killed with the eruption of Vesuvius. But he was a kind of general, a scientist, um, a traveller. He writes about the, the wonders. Alexander the Great almost certainly visited all of them apart from the lighthouse of Alexandria, which was built after he died, but in the city that was named after him. And absolutely, we think actually that these seven wonders lists were often written as a kind of, you know, guidebook. So it was like, oh, you know, this is where it will take you, it will take you a couple of months, but you can go and see them all. And again, isn't that fascinating that people in times which are really tough, you know, that disease and famine and military attack is often just around the corner, but people take time out of their busy, difficult, dangerous lives to go and literally go and sightsee all of the wonders. So there is Roman, Greek and Roman graffiti in the pyramids. So we know that people sort of put down the I was here equivalent on the wonders. So yeah, people people would go and go and visit them. And that carried on through the medieval time as well. So one of my favourite characters who I came to know through writing this book is this is this brilliant woman called Egeria who's from sort of late antiquity very early medieval world and we don't know whether she's a nun or a lay sister but she seems to come from some community of of women and she just sets off and goes on this sort of tour of the holy lands as she understands it and then therefore goes to see a, a lot of these wonders so she goes to visit the great pyramid at Giza and we think she's probably the first person to say Actually, this isn't a pyramid. It's the granary stores of Joseph from the Bible. And from then on, in the medieval world, in the Christianised medieval world, people think of these as the granaries of Joseph. So those visitors have also had an impact on how, how the wonders are perceived. 
Well, that's interesting because I was going to ask a question about what did the different wonders mean to people? Because you can assign different meanings to them, like she assigned this grain storage meaning to the pyramid. What did they mean at different points in history? So, I mean, they have meaning when they're made. And I think that's one of the reasons that they are become so famous, that they're so beloved in their time. So, you know, if you think about it, the pyramid isn't just an, I mean, it is the most incredible work of engineering and it still is staggering to imagine the precision of the building you know with the 2.3 million limestone blocks and the fact in many places that it's only two centimeters out I mean it's just mind-blowing as an extraordinary construction but for the people of ancient Egypt it talked about humanity's connection to the cosmos and the connection between mortality and immortality because it was supposed to be as i said this sort of resurrection machine for the great king we can't actually call him pharaoh they start to be called pharaoh in the new kingdom and this is still the old kingdom but how he would after his death how he would travel to the to the stars and therefore as i said keep the world turning keep the universe turning and you know again you sort of think about that on the face of it, and you think, oh, that sounds quite fanciful in a way. But we now know in scientific and physiological terms, when we die, what we're made of becomes something else. It becomes part of the matrix. So we never actually disappear. We become something else. And in a way, that's what the pyramid is is saying to people. So, so that's what the pyramid meant to the ancient Egyptians. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon are really fascinating because I think they're proving that mankind can have control over nature. So whereas the ancient Egyptians were all about this thing called Mart, this sort of respect of, of nature and understanding its power, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, if you look at the writing of the time, a lot of it talks about using iron tools to go and dig up trees and carry earth and replant things and it's it's almost saying actually humans can make nature in our own image and in the image of these beautiful tumbling gardens so it's saying something about our relationship with the world the temple of artemis at ephesus really interestingly is in honor of this extraordinary asiatic artemis this eastern goddess who again is all about protecting uh, both hunters and the hunted, uh, the cycle of life, trees, mountains. If you look at how she was represented in Ephesus, the goddess is represented with these kind of, it's called polymastic. So she basically looks like she's got sort of a hundred breasts on her front, but they could also be honey sacks, they could be bull sacks. So she's all about our relationship, sort of nurturing our relationship with nature and, and with the environment. The Statue of Zeus at Olympia is the incarnation of male power, basically, in this macho site of Olympia where men, actually and some women, but mainly men, went and ran to sort of prove their physicality and their warrior might. And the Statue of Zeus is is the physical incarnation of that, of kind of human and particularly male potential. The mausoleum of Halicarnassus is this incredible sort of firework in the sky. It would have erupted on the on the landscape around, as I said, what is now modern day Bodrum. And that seems to be about proving how interconnected you are, because if you look at the, the architecture of the mausoleum of Halicarnassus, it's got a bit of Greek, it's got a lot of Carian, the Carians built it, it's got Roman influence, it's got Assyrian influence. So it's this sort of cosmopolitan monument in a sense the Colossus of Rhodes at the time 
was the incarnation of diplomacy because there'd been this terrible siege of Rhodes. And what we're told is that some of the weapons, there was, I mean, it's just a horrific destruction of the Rhodian people by, it was basically a sort of, it's almost like a kind of civil war amongst those that came after Alexander the Great, a debate over where Rhodes' allegiance should be. But the world intervened and said, this is crazy. You know, why are you killing each other in this way? And they encouraged there to be diplomacy and parley and as a result the i mean this is how legend has it we don't know but they tell us that the weapons and the siege machines were melted down and were and this this extraordinary statue of of helios the god of the sun was created but it was definitely symbolized the power of diplomacy and then finally the lighthouse of alexandria was both a physical beacon of light that guided people in and out of this extraordinary experimental city alexandria because it's very perilous the coastline around there so it was both that but it was also a symbol of learning because as many people know when you came to alexandria your docking tax was a papyrus scroll or scrolls which contained knowledge so it was this city it was you know supposed to be like the kind of internet before the internet alexandria all knowledge was meant to be there so it was this place where knowledge was fetishized and the lighthouse was this kind of literally beacon of light that memorialised that. So they they really meant something, you know, they weren't just massive buildings, <laughs> you know, they weren't just kind of show-off structures. They represented something that really mattered both to those ancient populations, but also they represented something that we can understand mattering now too. These seven wonders could seem quite a disparate collection. They're, they're sort of all over the place. They've got different stories attached to them. But is there any ways that they are similar or that they are connected together? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really important point. Because when you say the seven wonders of the ancient world, people sometimes think they're made up, that they're kind of mythical, but they're all absolutely real. If you say it, I think you again almost automatically think, oh, they're spread out across the globe. But actually, they're all very close to each other. They're all in this kind of ring of influence around the eastern Mediterranean, North Africa. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon are a little bit further inland, but they were very, very connected by ancient roots. So physically, there's a physical connection between them. Really interestingly, they kind of refer to each other. So, for instance, the temple that was built around the Statue of Zeus in Olympia, into which the Statue of Zeus was put, was a kind of a copy of the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus. If you look at the people who are working in Olympia and in Halicarnassus, and in Rhodes, a lot of those are the same artists. So there's this kind of premier league of artists who are being used to build them. So you can imagine them talking about it, sort of, oh, God, you know, how do we how do we make that finial look good? And, oh, I, this is what I, you know, I tried out in another temple nearby. Let's have a go at putting it there. So there is a kind of aesthetic creative connection between them and then also an emotional one because as we were saying you know people went to visit all of them it was the the ultimate bucket list in a way and you can imagine travelers and traders and the soldiers who went to see them you know really feeling cool about themselves if we go on a good holiday or a people go on a cruise or you you visit new places you know you feel really good about it. It shows that you're kind of meeting the world on the front foot and you've got the physical ability and financial ability to do that. And I think the ancients felt that too. I have some questions from readers now. 
Alex Plotkin on Facebook wants to know, what are some of the unique engineering efforts needed to create some of these wonders? Yeah, well, that's a fantastic question. And I mean, the answer is a lot of engineering innovation. You know, these are not easy things to build. But uh, for instance, with the Great Pyramids at Giza, brilliant work by Mark Lerner and his team on the Giza Plateau, just very, very recent archaeological work, is that he's understanding that what we sort of forget with the Great Pyramid is when you imagine it, you think of it in desert. But actually, for between six and eight weeks of the year in ancient times, during the, the flood of the Nile, the inundation, the, the water, the Nile waters would have come right up pretty much to its pretty much to its base. And you could still see in the 19th century images of the Nile with the pyramids reflected in the Nile. So it was a, a kind of watery monument, the, the pyramid. And Marx worked out that because there are these incredible descriptions on papyri that are being discovered and in a place called Wadi al-Jaf on the Red Sea, written by, I mean, it's, again, amazing bit of historical discovery, written by the actual teams who built the pyramid. I mean, you couldn't make it up for us as historians and archaeologists. It doesn't get more exciting. But this talks about the Lake of Khufu and the materials being sailed up the Nile. And it looks as though actually they were using the rise and fall of the water and water power to lift some of those blocks into place. So water engineering is the kind of new buzzword around around the pyramid itself. And for instance, there must have been some incredible pulley system in Ephesus when, when the Temple of Artemis was built because the lintel was so heavy, the, 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 you know, the sort of top bit of stone, that people said it couldn't have been done by humans and the goddess herself lifted it up overnight. So, you know, even then they were going like, how did they do that? You know, that's amazing. So we're pretty certain that that was a sophisticated series of pulley systems. Amazing. MHF Quigley on Instagram wants to know, how aware would a normal ancient person on the street have been about the Seven Wonders? Were they common knowledge? Yeah. I mean, again, that's a fantastic question. When I've been writing the book, I've really been trying to think about them as places that were experienced. You know, what was it like to ex to physically experience them? And there are kind of two answers to that. One is that I think they might well have heard of them because, again, what's really interesting to kind of acknowledge about us as a species is we love talking to each other. We love gossip. We love knowledge exchange. And we know that there are travellers and traders and armies who would have visited the locations of all of them and news would have come back. So, so I think in terms of word of mouth, people actually would have been aware of them. But the terrible tragedy is that the majority of them wouldn't have been accessible to the ordinary woman or man on the street. So definitely not the Great Pyramid at Giza, which was a kind of religious space. Definitely not the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which would have been within the royal palace and would have been controlled by the court. Almost the first one that really allows ordinary people to come to is the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus. And this does it with knobs on because the Temple of Artemis was actually a massive sanctuary. So it's somewhere that you could claim refuge. It literally, physically took in refugees. And by the time the Roman period, we get these descriptions of these kind of whole whole blocks where refugees would, would have slept. So that's the first place really that you get, as I said, ordinary worshippers, ordinary women and men would have experienced it firsthand. 
And Kimberly Dressler on Instagram wants to know more about how some of the ancient wonders were lost. So obviously the Pyramid at Giza still stands. But what happened to some of the others? Well, a mixture of things. Earthquakes are very bad bad for massive standing structures. So there was a huge earthquake in 1303 CE that actually shook some of the casing stones from the Great Pyramid of Giza and probably was pretty much the death blow for the lighthouse of Alexandria, which had been standing up until that time. The Colossus of Rhodes was also felled by an earthquake. So this extraordinary, massive, monumental, giant statue came tumbling to the ground, just sort of 50 or 57 years or so after it was built, which is tragic, you can imagine, because that would have been in living memory of some of the people, you know, who would have watched it being raised. And that must have felt, you know, petrifying, incredibly, incredibly depressing. The mausoleum of Halicarnassus, for instance, we know was standing, bits of it were standing in early medieval times. But I'm sorry to say that, you know, with uh, all kinds of building work around there from Crusaders and from the Ottomans and then later, material was used from the mausoleum of Halicarnassus, for instance, in the building of the great castle that was very close by, which had been the royal castle. You can still see some of those blocks of stone today. If you go to the, it's now called the Castle of St Peter in Bodrum. If you go there, you can physically see some of the slabs from the original mausoleum that were used in the building. But again, tragically, a lot of that was ground down for lime. You know, a lot of that beautiful sculpture and masonry. It was the same case with the Temple of Artemis, that a lot of that was ground down and used for lime. Obviously, controversially, bits and pieces of the Temple of Artemis and indeed of the mausoleum of Halicarnassus are in museums around the world, including uh, here in the UK. A number of people wanted to know about the latest archaeological discoveries about some of the wonders. Are there any notable examples you'd like to tell us about? Oh, I mean, yes, so so many and kind of so exciting. And I have to say, us understanding more about the building of the pyramid, the Great Pyramid, is pretty cool. And that's coming from consistent new archaeological work on the Giza Plateau. So actually understanding how it was built, you know, is pretty amazing. And what there's going to be some extraordinary discoveries in Alexandria, which are ongoing right now, you know, hopefully I'll be able to come back next year and and share a bit more of discovering some of the lighthouse of Alexandria on the seabed. So this is underwater archaeology. Very, very cool. When I was last in Alexandria, I was looking at some of the slabs that are coming up from these underwater dives. And I mean, it's just so exciting. So they're sitting there in pots of huge sort of saline tanks to desalinate them. And you can see, for instance, they've got these little holes drilled into them, which would have been for attaching bronze decorations. So you have to imagine it would have kind of gleamed out with this incredible shiny metal and possibly with other messages written on the the sides of the Great Lighthouse. So it is the joy of, of history and archaeology is that basically if it hasn't been destroyed, it's somewhere there waiting to be discovered. I was wondering if we could now go through some of the individual wonders one by one. And I wanted to start by talking about the most elusive of the wonders, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. So most historians and archaeologists, I think, agree that there's no concrete evidence that they actually existed. So what can we imagine that they might have looked like? Yeah, they're included because they're written about in the lists. And there were eyewitnesses who said that they saw them and who wrote about them. 
So just our challenge is that we haven't yet found any absolute hard and fast archaeological evidence of where they were and what they look like. And there's a possibility that they weren't in Babylon, that they were in Nineveh, further to the north, very close to what is modern day Mosul, because we know that there were gardens up in those palaces as well in Nineveh because they're described. But it's fascinating, isn't it? Because when I talk to people about the wonders and they say, oh, yeah, the, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, they're almost the most famous. But the irony is that they've left the least hard evidence behind. And there's a reason for that. So people, because they haven't known exactly what they look like, they've become almost like this sort of mythological legendary entry into the list that we can, in a way, colour them in from our own imaginations. But the descriptions are incredible and they probably were these sort of stacked above the walls, either of Babylon or Nineveh, within the palace, these kind of raised, um, staggered planting, you know, like giant, giant, giant window boxes. And we know that the kings at the time, because they write about it, when they went on military campaign or even just as an exercise in and of itself, that they would travel to lands and they would take trees and plants and, you know, these. it was sort of part of them being omnipotent and all-powerful that they would take vegetation from other places. So it's very likely that those trees and plants and bushes and other kinds of foliage would be brought back and would be planted as a status symbol in these great palaces. So there's we've got these bits and pieces of evidence, but it's very tantalising because we haven't physically got a garden that we can go to and try to excavate. On the opposite side of the spectrum, we have the Great Pyramid of Giza, which obviously you can still go see today. The only ancient wonder that can still be visited in its entirety. So my first question about this is, are we talking about the pyramids plural that are the wonder or is it the Great Pyramid singular? In a lot of the lists, it's the pyramids with an S. Well, not with an S, but, you know, the plural plural of pyramid, which is a Greek name. It's kind of means um, either a place of extension. It was probably called myrrh, something to do with myrrh. And a pyramid is like a sort of bun, a Greek bun. So they were sort of saying it looks like a cake, basically. But they, yes, yeah, so the pyramids are described. But because the Great Pyramid, Pyramid, Khufu's pyramid, as I said, was the oldest and tallest and biggest. That's the one that people have focused on when they've been, been describing the wonder of the pyramids. What do we know about why the pyramids were built? So they were built as a religious expression. If you look at the kind of progression in ancient Egyptian culture, the royals are starting to build tombs for themselves down at Abydos in the south. They then do that in Saqqara. So you get the kind of first pyramids, which are the step pyramid and then the red pyramid. So these pyramids, which are kind of experiments in pyramid building, if you like. But then these extraordinary monuments are built on the Giza Plateau. It's a fantastic place to build giant monuments. It's really visible, you're elevated, you're very close to the Nile. But the exciting thing is there's recent evidence from some of those, the papyri that I was talking about, which talked about the building of the pyramids, which might suggest actually that they were built 100 years earlier than we thought, which might mean that Khufu is 100 years earlier. So they're still giving up their secrets, but they're definitely built for the rulers of Egypt and for them to rise to the stars in that uh, extraordinary Egyptian funerary ritual. And the next one, Joe, I wanted to ask you about. So the statue of Zeus at Olympia. So this statue was one of two masterpieces by the Greek sculptor 
Phidias. And it's one of the largest indoor sculptures ever made. Is that true? Yeah, that's right. I mean, and again, isn't that amazing? Because we've had a lot of time to do other sculptures in a lot of places, but it's yet to be beaten. But that's right. It was an incredible, incredible work of art and engineering. And he was a master sculptor. So he did do other other monumental works too. Um but very excitingly, we think he actually had a studio at Olympia because there's been a, a pottery shirt that possibly has his name on. But it was definitely a studio because there are sort of chippings of ivory and rock crystal and some of the tools that would have been used in the making of the statue in Olympia. So it's where they would have built the sculpture, but also they'd have sort of practised and it had a, a wooden frame the sculptor and which is actually eventually sadly how it probably got burnt down after it had been transported to Constantinople what's now Istanbul so so it probably was destroyed in a great fire there in the fifth century CE but yeah so Fadis I mean what a man you know to build this he'd already built these this incredible giant giant sculpture of Athena in Athens and this is this is now another of his masterworks and how is the statue of Zeus related to the Olympic Games can you tell us a bit about that the olympic games was a religious experience i think we forget that you know people were going to a sanctuary they had a sacred procession before they went there so of course the god zeus who's it's his sanctuary it's the sanctuary of the king of the gods zeus who originally came from mount olympos which is why this is called olympia and people would have paraded to ask for his blessings in in the fight and then would then the winners would have kind of approached him to again to get his blessings to take back to their city states so he would have been very present there in the ritual around the olympics and and for those competitors in the olympic games and now i wanted to move on to talk about the mausoleum of halicarnassus so who was this built for what do we know about them so it was built for mausolus king mausolus hence the name so all mausoleums in the world are named after this carian king that you know most most people don't really know about it was also built interestingly for his sister artemisia his sister and his wife artemisia because they married their sisters in the carian court at the time again it was a sort of death monument for him he was an incredible pioneer he really evolved what the carian kingdom was he was a satrap for the persians but he really advanced the Carian cause, was an incredibly ambitious man. And this was an incredibly ambitious death monument for him. So it was built for him. But as I said, interestingly, it was finished by his sister wife, Artemisia. She was also buried there. So in a way, maybe it should be called the Artemisium because she was the last person to be buried there. So instead of mausoleums around the world, if that had been the case, we would have Artemisions everywhere. And then my fifth one on the list, so we've got the Colossus of Rhodes. This was estimated around 108 feet high, roughly, and it became a wonder, I think, within weeks of its completion. So you write in your book, actually, that this is a wonder that's been, there's a lot of myths around it. What do you think the biggest myth about the Colossus is? The kind of biggest one is that if you look at all images of it pretty much from the medieval period or from the 15th century onwards through to now, through to computer games, is that it's this giant statue of the god Helios straddling the harbour of Rhodes, so with his legs kind of akimbo, you know, one foot on one side, one foot on the other. And in engineering terms, we know that would have been impossible. I mean, it's just physically impossible because it would have been such a stretch of those legs. It would have been virtually doing the splits. That's the biggest myth. And I spent a lot of time exploring in roads and thinking about it and thinking where it would actually have been. 
And what we probably think now is that actually it was up on the hill. If you approach Rhodes by sea, you can really imagine where it would have been, that it was up high on the hill overlooking the harbours. So it would have been a kind of guide for people sailing in, but almost like within the eyeline of the harbours, but not physically straddling the two. So, and very excitingly, again, there are some foundation stones right up on that high hill in Old Rhodes Town, which could be the foundation stones for the Colossus. So those are being explored as we speak. Oh, that would be exciting to know if they were the actual place. And who did this statue represent? So it represented Helios, the god of the sun, Rhodes does see the sun. I think it's something incredible, like, you know, 350 days of the year or something. So it's a very sunny island. But interestingly, the face, the way it's described, sounds as though it looked like Alexander the Great. So it's this moment after Alexander's death where he's sort of becoming a god and he's being conflated with the gods. So it probably looked a bit like Alexander, but was a representation of this ancient titanic god Helios. The Colossus of Rhodes only stood 60 years before it collapsed, so it didn't last very long. But the Lighthouse of Alexandria, the seventh wonder on our list, was the third longest surviving wonder. What can you tell us about its purpose? It's an amazing thing, the lighthouse, because it was built as a lighthouse. So it had a very practical purpose. We think there was a flame, which was then mirrored with very finely beaten metal. Uh, that possibly revolved, or there was possibly some kind of revolving mechanism up on the top, which would have just been a lighthouse for ships coming into Alexandria because I've been on that northern coast of Egypt during storms and it's petrifying. It's The tides are very difficult there. The waves are huge. So physically would have helped guide sailors and those boats that came in and out of that port city. We think it might also have been one of the world's first weather vanes, so that there would have been some, a sculpture again that would have moved, that would have talked about where the direction of the of the winds. But really, it was a kind of symbol. Alexandria was the greatest city on earth at the time. It was incredibly ambitious and pioneering and, you know, wanting to be this sort of very modern place where knowledge really was power. And in a way, it was a symbol of that. It was a kind of beacon of the power of human understanding. And people described it like that. I mean, again, there's sort of later legends that grew up about it, that it was in some Arabic texts, people say that Queen Cleopatra built it. And, you know, she definitely didn't. But what's what's incredible is she would definitely have looked at it, you know, day in, day out. When she woke up in her palace complex, the, the lighthouse of Alexandria would have greeted her in the mornings. Oh, lovely. And then the only one that I think we haven't discussed specifically is the Temple of Artemis. The thing that I found really interesting was the story of how it was, the, it was actually originally destroyed by an arsonist and then rebuilt later. Yeah, well, it was actually, so this is in the 4th century. So interestingly, it's been standing for, you know, 200 years, probably longer. There's probably older versions of the temple, one of which was decorated in gold by Croesus, King Croesus, who was famously wealthy and who came and sort of with a bit of grandstanding said he was rebuilding the temple. So later in the 4th century BCE, you get this extraordinary character called Herostratus who burns the temple down. And it seems that he did it 
purely to be famous. I mean, that speaks to us a lot about the power of fame and, you know, the value of celebrity. He just seems to have done it in order to become known around the world. And so to punish him, the officials at Ephesus said that nobody could speak his name. And on pain of death, as you say, people would have said who he was. But then there's this kind of radical libertarian who says, no, we must have freedom of speech. A guy called Theopompus of Chios, the nearby island of Chios, who, who tells us his name. His name was Herostratus. So that's why we can now talk about him. But it's actually a thing. Herostratus fame is a thing when you do something incredibly negative purely in order to be remembered. So you're kind of become famous for being infamous. And he succeeded because we're talking about him all these years later. We're near the end of the podcast now and I've got some final questions for you. So if you could nominate an eighth ancient wonder, what would it be? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting that. And I think we might actually start a competition to nominate the eighth ancient wonder. You know, it's really hard for me, this, because, as you know, I travel around the world. I've spent my life with ancient monuments. I love them all. I feel like I'd be being very disloyal to to pick one. But I wonder if, you know, maybe somewhere that's being excavated at the moment are these incredible sites in what's now modern-day Turkey down in the southeast, which are this whole sort of constellation of cities and monuments and temples from way back, from 10,000 years ago. and I think that whole constellation of cities could be or should perhaps be the eighth wonder, partly because it tells us about how sophisticated we were so early on and it sort of describes the beginning of society in a way as we as we know it. And then my final question for you is if you could travel back in time to see one of the ancient wonders at its peak, which one would you choose? I think I would probably go to, well, I can't say one. So I'm going to give you two. I think I'd probably, I'd probably go to the Temple of Artemis because I'd love to experience what it was like to worship a goddess and to worship a goddess that you believe protected nature and young women and gave sanctuary to people just to experience what that felt like. So I think I'd probably, I would probably go there. And then I have to say the Pharos, the lighthouse of Alexandria, just because it represented something extraordinary. It represented the power of understanding and learning and communication and being cosmopolitan and sharing ideas. And it was huge. So I would love to have gone and seen this sort of absolute, towering skyscraper that hovered above this extraordinary ancient city I think that would be you know that would be a site I would never forget that was Bethany Hughes the author of the seven wonders of the ancient world which is out on the 18th of January published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson if you want to learn more about the seven ancient wonders then Bethany has also written a feature on the subject for the February issue of BBC History magazine Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. <laughs>